Here we are in the very last word of the last prophet, Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Let's stand together as we read God's word. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I've commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. John Huss. John Huss lived in the Czech Republic in the 1400s. And his name in his native language, Huss, means goose. Huss became a Catholic priest, and in his own words, to secure a good livelihood and to be held in esteem by men. I want to become a priest because it's really a good living. And also, people look up to me. After becoming a priest, his thinking began to change. And he increasingly trusted the scriptures. And he began to distance himself from the teachings of the Pope. And as the priest at Bethlehem Chapel, which is in the Prague, and the chapel seems small, but it was over 3,000 people, Distancing himself from the Pope was not welcome. So in December of 1414, John Huss was urged to attend a church council to come and defend his views about what he thought about the scriptures. And when he arrived, he was immediately imprisoned and tortured for 73 days. Huss's views about the priority of God's word over man's word were never taken seriously. He was only in prison in order to recant, to to take back what he said he believed. And he said this in the face of this pressure to recant. For the truth of the gospel, which I have written, taught and preached, I will die today with gladness. For the, for the truth of the gospel, if that's what I'm standing here on trial for, and you're asking me to recant, I cannot recant. And not only will I not recant for the truth of the gospels, I will gladly die today. And so die he did. On July the 6th, 1415, 
John Huss, the goose, was burned at the stake as a heretic for trusting the scriptures, which is where we saying your goose is cooked. So if you've ever said that or heard that, it comes from John Huss, the goose who was cooked at the stake in 1415. Maybe gives you a different view of when you say it. Just before lighting the fire, Huss's famous last, last words were, Today you will roast a goose, but 100 years from now a swan will rise whose singing you shall not be able to silence. There was a, a momentum that Huss could sort of feel himself in. And he was saying, today you're going to be able to, to roast this goose. Today you're going to be able to put one man to silence. But as time comes on, and I'm just looking out a hundred years from now saying, there will a swan will rise and you will not be able to silence this movement really of the Scriptures. 102 years later, Martin Luther 1517, nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door and started what we know as the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation was essentially a call back to the Scriptures. And many times when you see uh, portraits of Martin Luther, in the portrait somewhere is a swan. Because people realized that this prophetic word that John Huss had given a hundred years ago, that Luther himself was the swan. And that as Luther came on the scene, his time and the, and the work and the a word through him of the Holy Spirit, you were not going to be able to silence this swan who was singing. And on occasion, you can find a picture of Martin Luther and in the back or in the bottom corner on a spit, on a rotating spit, is a goose. Get, giving credit from John Huss to say, you know, this man that you're looking at who really was the, the head of the Protestant Reformation, he never would have been able to, to do what he did without the sacrifice of this other man named John Huss. Huss's words went silent for 100 years, but they carried a kind of vibration over into the next century. And essentially, we have the same thing in the in the book of Malachi. We come to the last words of the Old Testament. But but like these last words, like John Huss's, they they have a vibration and they vibrate across 400 years until the silence is shattered one day in a temple when an angel visits Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter 1, it says this, Then the angel of the Lord said to, uh, to Zechariah, Do not be afraid. There's not been a word from the Lord for 400 years, and an angel comes and breaks the silence to Zechariah, saying, Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife will bear you a son. You are to give him the name John. And many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord. And now listen what the angel says. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
So you see here in these last few verses in Malachi, he's, he's saying something around 400 or 450 B.C. And, and then there's this silence, but there's some kind of vibration that the sound makes. And the angel picks it up 400 years later to say, I'm here to fulfill something that, that seemed like it went silent. But now I am ready, says the Lord, to come. And I'm preparing something and I'm coming and before me is this person who's coming like Elisha as a prophet would come. So in these last three verses, verses four, five and six, I want to just look at the three obvious things. First, in verse four, Malachi is calling his congregation and I think calling us to look back. He's like the, you know, the Janus coin. The Janus figure of the Greek gods is the, the two faces. The two faces largely are uh, at doorposts, looking forward, looking back. And so that's what he's doing. This, this prophet standing here and he's looking forward, looking back. And at first he says, let's look back. Let's remember the law of my servant Moses. And then he's looking forward. Behold, verse 5, I'm going to send you somebody in this great and awesome day when the Lord comes and then he closes with a, a sober warning. I mean, here's how the Old Testament ends. Utter destruction. Uh, a lot of the Jewish people who put the Bible together didn't really like that ending, so they inserted another line in there. So it was something a little more hopeful than utter destruction. But so we see these three things, and let's just look at them in turn. Looking back, verse 4, remember the law of Moses. The word remember in Hebrew has a certain connotation. It means knowledge that's connected to action. He's not just saying remember some information. He's saying remember some information that's going to cause some transformation. Knowledge which leads to action. And, and remembering and acting on what you remember of the truth of the Word of God is a frequent theme in the Bible. Think, think with me, Genesis chapter 1, the, the temptation in the garden. Satan comes and the first thing he says, did God really, did he really say? I mean, a, a word has been given. Think about this. Adam and Eve only had to obey one law. And Satan comes in and says, do you really remember him saying that? Maybe it was something a little bit different. Are you really going to act on that word? Are you really going to trust that word? And Satan's undermining the word of God in his very first statement. Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means repeating or remembering the law. And in his sort of famous last words in Deuteronomy 30s, he's closing out his life and he says this. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. This has, has this same feeling of Malachi. See, I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, now choose life. Do, do you hear the, the heart of Moses? Moses is passing on and he's saying, don't forget. This is, this is the word of the Lord. Don't, don't let it be undermined in any way. Remember what he has said. Act on what he has said. Jesus in 
Luke chapter 4. He's been baptized. He's now out into the desert. He's not in a garden. He's in a desert and he's being tempted. And he has three specific temptations. And you remember how he responds to each temptation? He remembers a word of the Lord from the book of Deuteronomy. All of his responses to the temptation come out of the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus remembered the truth of the word of the Lord. So when Adam and Eve were re-tempted, they didn't really remember. They didn't act on it. But when Christ is being tempted, he remembers what the Lord has to say. He trusts the word. He acts on the word. The Apostle Paul, the great evangelist, is nearing his death. And he, he squeezes out one last letter from a prison cell. And he writes to his uh, disciple, Timothy, and he says this, Timothy, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. They'll be boastful. But as for you, what, I mean, what a great line. This, this apostle saying, Timmy, Timothy, it's going to be like this. But as for you, see, you're going you're gonna to have to be different. What is that difference? Continue in what you have learned, what you have known from the Holy Scriptures. All Scriptures, God breathed. It's useful. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training. So that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, here's my last statement to my disciple. And I'm going to say, please don't forget the Word. It's the one thing that lasts forever. Remember the word, act on the word. Even when the world around starts grasping at other things, you, you remember the word. And so Malachi here in chapter 4, verse 4, he's really just singing a chorus that happens all through the Bible. He's just joining another, another voice. He's another voice to this great choir to say, remember the word of God, trust on it, act on the word of God. Adniram Judson is known as America's first foreign missionary. Adniram Judson. But before he was a missionary, he was a college student. And at 16, he was smart enough to get into one of the Ivy League schools called Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. And as he entered college at 16, he was carrying with him this Christian faith of his family. But while, he's at, while he was at college, he befriended a student, a fellow student named Jacob Eames, E-A-M-E-S, Jacob Eames, who was a deist. And that was popular at the time, and e. Eames persuaded Judson that the Bible couldn't be trusted, that God was distant. Yeah, he got things sort of all going, but now he kind of, he's kind of exited the stage and now it doesn't really matter how you live your life, and certainly you wouldn't want to trust the Bible. And so by the time Judson left college, he was leading a reckless life. He no longer trusted in the Word of God. Instead, he trusted in the words of Jacob Eames. Not too many years later, Judson was traveling, and he came to nightfall, and he stopped at a small inn. 
And as he came to the innkeeper, said, well, we have a room and I'm just sort of apologizing in advance because the man who's in the room next to you is very sick. And I'm, I'm just saying he might keep you up. I mean, the walls are not well insulated here. Judson takes the room and all night he listens to some low voices, some groans and some gasps from the man next door. And he sat there all night listening to this and it bothered him to think about the man who wasn't prepared. Maybe he was not prepared to die. He began to wonder about himself. Am I prepared to die? He had terrible dreams of his own dying as he listened to this man. And then he sort of felt foolish because he thought, well, deists aren't supposed to worry about those kinds of things. Next morning, Judson was leaving. He asked the innkeeper if the man next door was better. And the innkeeper said, well, no, he died last night. Judson says, well, do you know who the young man was? Innkeeper says, oh, yes, the young man was from a college in Providence. His name was Jacob Eames. And Judson was frozen. It's no coincidence that Jacob Eames got swallowed up by death last night and I listened to it happen. And now I'm supposed to say it doesn't really matter because we're deists. It doesn't really matter how you live your life. It's not really important. And it froze Judson to think, can I really trust Eames's words now? Or should maybe I revisit the word of God? And it created this wrestling match that Thankfully, the Lord won out. Judson became a well-known missionary for the gospel. As we, as we think about chapter 4, verse 4, remember the law, remember the words, remember the statutes, remember the commands. I ask you, whose word are you remembering on? Whose word are you relying on? He's looking forward in verse 5. He's looking back and saying, let's remember, but then he's looking forward. He's turning around and he's giving us these last words. And he says, now behold, pay attention, this great and awesome day of the Lord, Yahweh, he's coming. And, and prior to his arrival, someone's going to come to sort of prepare a way, a, a herald, a messenger is going to go out in front and say, hey, somebody great is coming. Pay attention. Be ready. And he says it's going to be Elijah. Now, Elijah was a, the, the preeminent Old Testament prophet. And prophets were typically sent to the people of God to turn them around, to repent. Hey, guys, you're going in the wrong direction. I'm calling you back. I'm calling you back to remember the, the ways and the word of the Lord. Let's move back as a, as a person, as a king, as a country. You might remember probably the most famous intersection with Elijah uh, was on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. It's worth going back and reading later this afternoon. Uh, the, the Ahab was the king of Israel. He was a wicked king and he was married to Jezebel, the wicked queen. And they, they had brought in all kinds of uh, uh, Baals, all kinds of um, other gods to serve and to worship. And Elisha stands on this. He, he basically says, let's have a duel. My God versus your God. And they go up to this mountain called Mount Carmel and they build, each build some sort of uh, uh, altar 
And they said, well, you, all you can do is pray that the, the Lord would send down fire. And so the prophets of Baal send down, uh, the, they, they circle their altar and they ask for fire to come down from heaven. It never comes down. And then Elisha steps up. And he says first to the people that were watching, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long are you going to try to have a hand in the world and a hand on God? It doesn't work like that. That, that, that just tears you apart. And he's coming to say, let's, let's be all in for the Lord. If you're for the Lord, then follow him. But if you're for Baal, then just follow him. Be all in. And then Elijah stepped forward and he prays this prayer. Oh, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I'm going back to this foundational faith and let it be known today that you are the God in Israel. Answer me, O Lord, so that these people will know, will know that you are God and that you are turning their hearts back again to them. We know from Jesus's words in Matthew 11 that this Old Testament prophet that everybody was looking forward to, Elijah, was not going to be Elijah reincarnated, Elijah coming back to life in some way. It was going to be somebody who comes in the spirit of Elijah, somebody that comes in this prophetic spirit. And Jesus says that person is John the Baptist. And we heard it even in the angel's words. He will go before the Lord in the power, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So John the Baptist is this, this Old Testament person who's been talked about here in Malachi 4, chapter 5. He's the Elijah. He's the prophet who's coming to say, I'm doing the same thing. I'm trying to turn people's hearts back around to the Lord. And then notice what it says. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, some people think, some scholars think that's sort of like a, a family reunification kind of thing. That's what it mean, means is that when the Lord comes, families are going to be restored. And maybe, maybe that's true. And certainly to some degree that does happen. But we know that Christ himself says when he comes, there's going to be some division in families. So probably more scholars think, and, and the way I think as well, is that this isn't really about restoring family relationships. This phrase about hearts of fathers to their children. It's really a, a way of saying, I'll turn the hearts of the children of the faith back to the faith once carried by the spiritual forefathers. See, a, a faith got born in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, this strong timber, not perfect. But that's why you have a lot of references back to those people. And he's Malachi saying to his congregation, I'm the next generation of faithful followers of God. I'm going to make sure they have that strong timber of faith like your forefathers. Now, let me just explain so we can kind of see what's happening, because it can be a little bit complicated. We know that Malachi's congregation had lost its connection to its faith of its spiritual forefathers. Because in chapter 1, verse 1, remember this? God says, I've loved you. And they say, well, we, we just don't see it. And what does he say? I've loved you like I've loved Jacob. 
See, I have this kind of love and it's still extending, but they've gotten so disconnected, they no longer feel the connection to their spiritual forefathers. In chapter 2, verse 4, he's talking specifically to the priests. And he says this, so, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi, this is one of the sons of Jacob, may stand. My covenant with him was one one of life and peace, and I gave it to him. It was, a co- it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. This is what Levi did. This is what your spiritual forefather did. His true instruction, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6, was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips, and he walked with me. In verse 7, for the lips of the priests should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction, verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. And in turning aside, you've caused your congregation to stumble. And you've corrupted the covenant of Levi. See, you've gotten disconnected to your spiritual heritage. And so God is saying, or Malachi is saying, it's really a harsh assessment of the congregation's spiritual condition. He's standing up and saying to his congregation, you don't have any faith to connect to. So the next generation after you, I'm not connecting them to you. I'm connecting them to the, to the people who really had faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now imagine being the pastor who's saying that to his congregation. You just don't have enough faith to connect to. The, the power coming from you is so weak. I can't connect the next generation to you. i got to connect it back to their spiritual forefathers. And you see this in Luke 19. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, who was the wee little man, climbed a tree to see that all he could see. And he ends up going home with Jesus, and he ends up making a, a profession of faith. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is, what is he? He's a son of Abraham. See, this new generation that's coming when God comes, they're going to have the same strong timber of faith like their spiritual forefathers. They're not going to be connected to you because there's no wattage coming from Malachi's congregation. There's nothing to connect them to. So let me make one application and one observation here. It's worth asking a very sober personal and corporate question. When when God examines and evaluates your faith or our faith, is it strong enough to connect somebody to? I mean, when God Almighty is ready to move the life of a, a city or a person, And he says, I need to connect this new generation of believer. I need to connect this new believer to somebody who's really got some wattage coming out of them. Could that be you? Could it be us? Or has our faith or your faith collectively soured so much that really if we connect the new person to you, there's no no wattage. Remember Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame? Again, another great chapter if you're not familiar with it. Go home and read it today. 
the, the hall of fame of Old Testament faith. That's kind of what you think of Hebrews 11. And it's sort of one name after another of these people who have this strong timber. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, at the, after the end of this roll call, uh, the, the writer says, Therefore, I mean, now, now that you've seen, now that you've been connected to this strong, vibrant, powerful faith, he says, therefore, since you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, throw off everything that's entangling you and run with perseverance the race that is marked out for you and keep your eyes or fix your eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. See, see, you have this great spiritual heritage. Now, be connected to that and understand that Christ was doing something there and you be the next generation. So when another person comes along or another city's ready to turn, that there's some place I can plug those people into. And my question for us as a church and for you and me as individuals, is our faith strong enough that when somebody's ready to turn, God can say, hey, I'm going to just use that guy. I'm going to use that woman. Because they have something that when you plug into that, power happens. Why? Because they're connected to me. They really have faith. If you're a father or a mother here, can God connect your children to you and your faith? Let's say you're a student, you're a high school or college student. God's working on some student. And they're ready to say, yes, I'm ready to, to receive. I'm ready to believe. I'm ready to go with God. And God's looking for somebody to say, I need somebody here on this campus to plug this person into. Can can you be that person? That's an application. One observation. What tool does God use to shake up the people who are wavering between two points? You got this whole country that's wavering between two opinions. And God's going to come and intersect this whole country and say, let's not waver anymore. Let's go in one definite direction. What tool does he use What tool does God use to arrest the attention of the people in Malachi's day who've gone sour? See, it's a different time, but, but there's a congregation in Israel that basically have gone sour. They don't really want to do what God has them to do. And what tool does God use to arrest their attention? What tool does God use to go ahead of him and prepare the way of the Lord? When the Lord is going to come... What tool does God use? It's the same tool for each situation. You know what that tool is? A preacher committed to proclaiming the Word of God. That's the tool. Every time. So so when a person or a church or a city or a country is moving off of its foundation, then what is the tool? What's God's favorite tool 
a, a person who's proclaiming clearly and with, with, with uh, certainty the power in the Word of God so that people might turn and their hearts would turn and come back to the Lord. Ezekiel the prophet, he stands in the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. And these dry bones represent the spiritual decay of Israel. And he comes and he stands in this valley and he says, and God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel says, I don't know. But you know. God says, Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And they came to life. When everything's dead, I need somebody who can stand up and say, this is the word of the Lord. And when that happens, flesh comes on bone. And people who were previously dead, countries that were previously dead, cities that were in ruins, come to life. Because somebody comes in with the word of the Lord. Paul, again, from a prison cell, says to Timothy, I give you this charge. Here's the one thing you got to hold on to, Timothy. What does he say? Preach the word. For a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they're going to gather around them a number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to say, want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and they will turn aside to miss. But as for you, oh, what a great phrase. See, everybody's going to be wandering off and and going after myths and and they're going to be so full of themselves. And when they don't have enough of themselves, they're going to hire somebody to say things, good things about them. So what I want to do is I want to fill my pulpit with somebody who's going to make me feel good. And he says, but as for you, you're going to be different, Timothy. You're going to preach the word. The same word that brought death to life. Keep your head in all situations. Do the work of an evangelist. What, what's my observation? What's desperately needed in times of spiritual decay? What's desperately needed when people pay speakers to tell them what they want to hear? What's desperately needed when a culture slides off into believing myths? What's desperately needed is the preaching of God's word. And so if you're new to Christ Community Church, that's what we try to do from here. Without apology. We're not trying to say what you want to hear. (laughs) We're trying to say what you must hear. You must know the Word of God. Paul Phillips' word will probably not last past the parking lot. But God's Word... It lasts forever. And somebody's word like Jacob Eames that you've trusted in, death is going to swallow them whole. And then you're going to have to ask, whose word do I really trust? And my hope is that you'll be infiltrated with the power and the reality of the word of God. Finally, he has this warning. If the Lord does come... And he's calling the people's hearts back to himself. If they're not heeded, there's just one option left, and that's utter destruction. 
And it's not only a, a word for Malachi's day, it's a word for I, our day. You might remember the, the letters written to seven churches in Revelation. The last church, Laodicea. These people had grown apathetic. They still came to church, just didn't have any power. There, there was nothing to plug into in Laodicea. God comes with this assessment. These are the words of the Amen. This is Himself. The faithful and true witness. The ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. That you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. See, you don't have any wattage. You're not really connected to the faithful and true. You're not really connected to the Alpha and the Omega. You're not really connected to the Amen. And because of that, when people come to your church, there's nobody connected them to. There's nobody that has that strong timber of faith to say, it's not about me. Spout the Lord. And so Malachi's Last word. His dying words. Remember, remember the word of the Lord. <laughs> know that he's coming. Trust in him so you don't face utter destruction. Let's pray together. Lord, this is kind of a. A hard word at the end. Maybe a sobering or a resting word. Again, I think about how many words I might have have had in the past in my own head that I was trusting like Jacob Eames. I went to college, I heard a professor say, and I lived my life according to that. And now that person's dead. Maybe I'm a student. I'm on a high school, middle school, college campus. Some young, young person in the faith is ready to turn. And God is looking for someone to plug the person into who really can point them to Jesus. May it be us as a church. May it be us as individuals. Lord, help us to hear the word of Malachi, not just for information, but for transformation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.